Hello, people, and welcome to another episode of Panels and Bars. This week, we'll be discussing Dune. But now, here's some news. So last night, Jay-Z was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Reasonable Doubt turns 25 this year, which means Jay is finally eligible. It's well-deserved because he's the greatest rapper of all time. During his speech, he thanked Chuck D, Big Daddy Kane, and of course, LL Cool J. He was also inducted this year, also well-deserved. It was a fantastic speech, very funny. He kind of spoke about the opening days of Rockefeller and he gave a shout out to Dame Dash even though they're not partners anymore he still had to thank him for his part that he played in the opening days if you haven't listened to Reasonable Doubt I don't know what you're doing in your life go and check that out now it's one of the greatest rap albums of all time Jay-Z legend well deserved congratulations in other news the Morbius trailer should be going live tomorrow that is November 2nd it's already been seen on some parts of the internet, I guess, due to this Spider-Man Sony leak that happened over the past week. I actually not even sure if I'm going to watch it because apparently there is quite a big Easter egg which hints at the future of the Spider-Verse. Um, but people are excited. So if you are the type of person that likes spoilers or trailers, Morbius, November 2nd. In uh, other news, Funko Pop has recently announced two new drops. One is the Matrix Resurrections that will have the entire cast. There are glam shots for Morpheus, Neo and Trinity, but nice. the rest of the cast should be dropping in the second wave, which also includes some agents. They've also included, they've also announced brand new drops for Squid Game. Feels a bit weird to me to be having these cutesy characters <laughs> who are all being like exploited and killed for profit. But hey, if you want to have some nice battle royale death characters on your shelf, Squid Game coming soon. So this week, oh, wait, I've got some. I, I've got some news. I don't know if you've heard about this, but the uh, Eternals is reviewing lowest. Of yes. all Marvel films that have ever been released. I have seen. The so World. there is there is a theory that a lot of this is review bombing because, you know, DC fans love to review bomb. There is also a lot of people saying, well, it's reviewing low because it's a good film and it actually breaks the conventions of most Marvel films. I know it is one of the first Marvel films to have significant mentions of sex and apparently there is a sex scene in it. It's a lot darker. It's a lot more centered around conversations of people just talking in rooms for a long time before they punched the cgi dragons so it could be that people just don't like change it could be rampant dc fanboys or it could be terrible i don't think it's going to be terrible i also don't think it's going to be particularly interesting we'll find out in about seven days i think it's released i don't know what to think of it i saw i've seen the imax trailer and the one thing that really stood out to me and this could be, I know with some Marvel films, they work to the last minute, but an IMAX, that CG looks really bad. I mean, I saw, when I saw June, there were a couple of trailers beforehand. There was like a bad looking Princess Diana movie. And then there was the Eternals trailer. And it was really notable that people talked, like people were chatting in the theater and they were talking through the Princess Diana trailer. And then they talked through the Eternals trailer. And then at the end, when there was the joke about the table, nobody yeah. laughed. Like, there was not a single noise. Yeah. And then the trailer for that Will Smith film where he plays Venus and Serena's dad came on, and the entire theatre went completely silent, and everybody watched it because 
it was it's a fucking great trailer. Um, and then the film was silent as well because everybody was paying so much attention to June. I thought it was really notable that like I was kind of nervous that the screening was going to be loud, but then actually it was just <laughs> nobody gives a fuck about watching the Eternals trailer. So I haven't seen um, anyone. I've seen the, tra- the trailer a few times, and like you say, you, in previous Marvel trailers you kind of hear either excited fanboys or people who don't know and kind of, oh, what's this? And But I haven't heard any of that for Eternals. No one seems to be intrigued, even with that stacked cast of great character actors and people who are from known entities, yeah. known quantities. You've got Angelina Jolie, members of the cast of Atlanta, Game of Thrones. It's not exciting anyone. So we'll see. No, Um the, the fanboys behind me in June, one of them was like, what's this? And the other one turned to him and went, it's like the X-Men, but shit. Wow. Um, <laughs> Put that on the poster, Marvel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, just as a side note as well with the Morbius thing, I have read the spoiler for what's in the Morbius trailer, and it's weird and stupid. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why they would have that thing in the trailer and i am concerned by it so that's that if you're interested if, if that if that lights up your interest then go looking but cool. yeah, it's it's weird it's i mean weird. I, it drops tomorrow i probably will watch it so yeah. as i said at the top we are reviewing june dune however you want to pronounce it i pronounce it june like the month because dune just doesn't roll off my tongue but have at it yeah so for those that don't know acclaimed science fiction novel legendarily referred to as unfilmable by most Hollywood executives after David Lynch famously tried to adapt it. He has disowned it, has distanced himself from it ever since, did not enjoy the process of making it. And the version that most people have seen is not even his cut. He famously turned down Return of the Jedi to make it. I think he regrets that as well. And it was just a troubled production. It's a long sweeping epic and maybe shouldn't have been... Tried to, they shouldn't have tried to adapt it to one film. But at the time, franchises weren't what they were now. And you didn't just de- pl- decide to plan ahead and do three or six films as you do now. Then That's commonplace. So it was a different time. For a long time, there was a, a massive stigma. It's got a, a huge fan base. So I think executives always knew there was money in an adaptation. It was how do you go about it? And Denis Villeneuve, who's gone from some of the most intimate, small productions that are really character focused and has slowly just become one of the best modern science fiction directors around decided he was going to tackle it and he also decided he would only tackle it if Warner Brothers the studio in charge would allow him to adapt the story in full so volume one is doing gangbusters at the moment volume two has been announced that's officially in pre-production all the cast are happy and excited to take part in it. This has done really well. It's it's testing really well. In the States, it's currently streaming on HBO Max and in theatres. And on HBO Max, it's one of the highest rated things at the moment in a great year for them. So it's just a massive success all around. I was funny enough actually re-listening to the great pitch-off we did with Rosie Knight. And <laughs> there is a moment in that when all three of us laugh at the fact that Dune's going to be great, but it's going to bomb. And we are all massively proven wrong, which is a fantastic thing to say, because going forward, this will hopefully mean that studios will take chances on weird sci-fi like this and auteurs like him will be given the autonomy to create great stories 
and not have to kind of dumb it down for the audience and not have to mm-hmm. think about Happy Meal toys or action figures. They can just tell weird stories and be given a massive budget to do that. So it is a fantastic thing. With that being said, I did not feel anything when I watched this film. What? I felt not a single thing. Oh, okay. So we will cover this when we get to our later segment in the show, What's Really Good, where Patrick and I talk about what we have, more the media we've consumed over the past week. But the week prior to this, I saw Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which is the most Wes Anderson thing that has ever Wes Andersoned. It's full of unique sets and animated segments and weird characters and whimsical music. And Timothy Chalamet is in that for about 20 minutes. And for the 20 minutes he's on screen, I was enthralled. I was on the edge of my seat. I fell in love with this character and I want him to get his own spinoff. I was with him for two and a half hours of this film and I didn't care. This entire cast of some of the most talented people on the planet, they're all charisma machines. They just exude charisma and they're all really, you can tell that they're dedicated to it. I didn't care. And I think part of it is not, it's not the film's fault. It's, it's a story that obviously was, was told and written a long time ago. So I, being the age I am, have consumed a lot of media that was probably influenced by the original text. So mm. a lot of the conventions of this aren't new to me. They're not exciting to me. And that's not the fault of it, but it just, I've, I've, I've just, I feel like I've seen the story a bunch of times. I've seen it done better personally. And I think also it had this weird contradiction within it, which also, once again, isn't the fault of the text. But obviously it came from a time when a lot of the story elements were probably revolutionary and and really futuristic. But to me now, sound a bit silly. So to see all these very serious actors very seriously talking about spice trades and... And ridiculous planet names. It just came across like it. You're taking it too seriously. It was just a bit ridiculous for me. And I don't want anyone to think I'm bashing it because the, like I said, the cast give amazing performances. Stunt work, fantastic. Fight choreography, fantastic. It's one of, if not the best looking sci-fi movie, best looking sci-fi movie I've ever seen. It looks gorgeous. The CG is really impressive. But I just, I didn't feel anything for anyone. I just didn't... I know Patrick is probably seething inside right now, so I will let you speak, but it just didn't do anything for me. Okay, well, brutal. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) Hard opposite for me. Five out of five. It's it's honestly one one of the best films I've seen for years. I've watched it twice so far, Okay, but I'll definitely be going in for a third, fourth viewing. Um, I... I think I liked, I can't really think of anything that I didn't like about it, aside from I felt that uh, obviously the fact that it's only half a book meant that it ended kind of abruptly. And um, there were a couple of characters who I felt were underdeveloped um, in a way that like, like I found Josh Brolin being cast as Gurney and then he was in like three scenes and then like, that was it. And he was just, and, and he, we didn't even, I'm assuming he's not dead because we, we didn't see him die and that's film rules. Um, Do you want to split it guessing into that, spoiler and non-spoiler? Yeah, sure. Oh. So, so non-spoiler, it's 
unbelievably beautiful. Yeah. It's spectacular looking. Uh, I really, really enjoyed most of all how weird it is. <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm all in for what I'm tired of is everything that's like everything that's not a crime movie or a movie about people with miserable lives on earth being incessantly needing to be wink and nodding and funny and like the Marvel type style. Uh, there's always a joke. And so for me, the seriousness with which they approached it was its major. Strength. I did um, think there was a bit of that in this film though. So Jason Momoa like, Ooh, do you got some, you got some muscles? Really? No. Haha. <laughs> like there was a lot of that kind of I don't know because you, like you said because the majority of it was serious, I found some of that stuff jarring. What I thought worked about that was that Jason Momoa's character Duncan was the only one who seems to have a sense of humor. Yeah. So I I felt very much that like like I think that in the real world you have some people who are funny mm. and they make jokes and regardless of the circumstance they'll they'll crack a joke with you even when it's not necessarily appropriate and then other people take things seriously and that split I thought like it's a serious world where everybody's pretty miserable he was the only person in the film who seemed to have any sort of sense of humor yeah. Uh, and so I kind of, but he still like when he was back from his mission and discussing people with them, he was very serious. And I thought that he was very, I, I thought he was very, I thought interestingly, he didn't have many more scenes than Josh Brolin. He made much more of an impression though. Yeah. He, he made a really strong impression. He, I thought he was a really likable character. Yeah. And what I really liked was how economical they were with like his relationship with Paul, because like, they they were only in a couple of scenes, but like every time that they met each other, Paul was so genuinely excited to see him that you got the sense that they had this kind of long term relationship yeah. without them needing to kind of you know do some expositionary dialogue. I did think that the first ten fifteen minutes were a touch exposition dumpy, but there's a lot of setup to do, and I don't know how else you'd handle that really. Yeah. But yeah, from about fifteen minutes in, I think that. I liked everything about it, mm. really. Um, I thought the performances were excellent. They're not very human in a lot of places. Yeah. Like they are, they are. And, and, and this is it. This is it. Once again, just to reiterate, I don't want anyone to think I didn't like it. I didn't like it and I didn't dislike it. I can just take it for what it is. I know it's a very well-crafted film. You can tell an incredible amount of very talented people worked really hard on this. And if I, if I had to pick one thing I disliked, it's not even I disliked it. I wasn't crazy about the score. And that's just, this is going to be a thing very specific to me and maybe a very small subset of people. But for anyone who's watched Arrested Development, there is this running joke where sometimes people think something mystical is happening in the world and it's literally just a coincidence. And whenever that happens, this kind of tribal music plays in the background and goes, coincidence. And a lot of Hans Zimmer's score sounded exactly like that. So it kind of took me out of a lot of the more dramatic moments. And that was maybe the one problem I had with it. But like I said, it's, it's as good as a film can be. Like everyone in every department is firing on all cylinders. The CG is amazing. The sound design is amazing. The costumes, they have this insane other world design to them, but they look real. They look lived in. There's 
the way there's yeah. dents and, and, and cracks in the armor and everything makes sense. The guys who come from a world where the atmosphere is similar to ours have the type of armor we would wear. The people who are indigenous to the sand lands have materials that suit that terrain so they can be camouflaged among the sand. They have wraps because you'd be having, you know, sand in your eyes and whatnot. And then there's even an explanation for their physiology because their bodies and their generations have had to adapt to that terrain so everything is really well thought of whether it's said in exposition or whether you just notice oh wow his arm is like this and her arm is like that there's something everything about it you can tell they've sat over this for hours and even if Villeneuve was ever, never able to make part, parts two and three you can tell he's got ideas for where they're going to go and there's things that hint at and that but I don't I don't know. Maybe it's because I have no soul. I just <laughs> couldn't connect with the characters. I, 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 and that's a, I don't know. It seems like a weird thing to, to say in a review, but it's honest. That's just how I felt. But I didn't... When I left the fresh French Dispatch, I left smiling from ear to ear and felt like that's what cinema should be. When I left this from a critical point of view, I could say, yeah, that's phenomenally well made. But if they don't make part two, I won't lose any sleep over it. Damn. Whereas you see, I was very much like, I was sat there on the edge of my seat for several days, repeatedly checking my phone to see how it was doing at the box office until until the thing came up, until you sent me a text saying that they had been renewed. And I was all like, oh, and I like exhaled because I was feeling genuinely relieved about the fact that I wasn't going to have to miss out on seeing the second half of it. Yeah. Um, I would also say non-spoilers wise, uh, I'm really, really, after Blade Runner, I was worried that they wouldn't let him make another film that was really expensive. And I really thought that if this failed as well, it would be a scenario where he would probably not be offered a really big budget again by a major studio. So I'm really, really glad that it's made enough money to be a success and keep him. Because I think that that's the other thing is that I... I absolutely love his films. I think he's like, one of the greatest I, filmmakers working today. His his back catalogue is impeccable. It's, he's just... I love, love the way he frames shot. Yeah. Absolutely. And one thing I really enjoyed in this was the sense of scale. Like, they never show yeah. you anything without also showing you people next to it or something next to it that we have a scale reference for in relation to people. So, like, there's a shot where they all get into, like, a helicoptery thing and then you see the size of that and then they fly over a city and they land at the palace and you see the helicopter thing in comparison to the palace. So rather than just being one of those static disassociated shots, you have a sense of how big that, that building is like all of the big shots of like giant spaceships are accompanied by legions of soldiers standing on the ground next to them. And then we'll zoom into a close shot of those soldiers on the ground. So you've always got, a sense of relational scale, which is something that he does. He did it brilliantly in Blade Runner. He does it. And I always, I often struggle with like sci-fi movies and fantasy movies where there's just stuff. And I'm all like, I don't know what that thing is. I don't know how big that thing is. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about that thing or what it, whereas his, his movies are never like that. Never even, even though the spaceships don't have anything that we could point at and go, that's a door, that's a window on them you still have a really really strong sense of their size one thing he does really well is he seems to acquire a new skill with each project 
and then he'll add it to the next. So there were elements of this, like when they were in those helicopters, a lot of the shots were reminiscent of Sicario. And I thought that was great because Sicario, those are militarized helicopters. Those are helicopters belonging to the CIA. And so to us, that's kind of a, a quite everyday event. It's nothing phenomenal, but to recontextualize it and use it in a cipher, I thought that's really clever. You know, there's, even if you are a visionary director or a visionary cinematographer or graphic designer, we can't help but be influenced by what we've consumed in the past. So Star Wars, Guardians of the Galaxy, whatever, they feed into each other because you grow up on an imagery, Buck Rogers, all this stuff. And so even if you're trying to be original, sometimes it's so ingrained in you. So to see someone tackle this, but they're taking imagery from things like a military movie... It was he did stuff like that all the time in this, which is I thought was even things like some of the training suddenly had a lot of flashes of you know Japanese Tokyo kung fu action, even just the, the quick training montages, the the language of them, the framing of them. He just he's able to take these influences from other places. So, like I said, it's a genre we've seen a thousand times, sci-fi, and especially this type of sci-fi. But a lot of the framing, a lot of the shots of Rope Direction feels really fresh. And yeah, like you said, I, I really hope they just keep letting him have these insane budgets and making these weird movies until he dies because he's brilliant at it. Yeah, like, absolutely. I, I kind of trashed Blade Runner originally when it came out. I think mainly because I do love the original so, 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 so much. So it had a lot to live up to in my eyes. And I think it still fails in a lot of respects. But you have to respect how ambitious it is. It's one of the best looking sci-fi films I think I've ever seen. And the things it gets right, it gets really right. You know, it's it's I like I like twenty forty nine way more than the original Blade Runner. I know that you're not really? I, know, I know that you're not supposed to say that, but yeah, I like it. I like it a lot more. Um interestingly, because one of the things I was gonna say about this one is that I'm not sure how much we're supposed to feel yeah. for the characters. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not sure that that's a failing in terms of like, I view it more like a David Attenborough documentary mm. type thing where we are watching these, these people. Cause the, although they look like people, obviously what you got to remember is that this is like, it's like 30,000 years in the future. They are humanoid, but they are not people like we are. And, and so there's a level at which I'm kind of watching it. And I find like, I think that it's very difficult to tell, what they're feeling or what they're thinking. But I don't think that that's a weakness at all. But interestingly, with 2049, I think one of the things that I really like about that in comparison to the original Blade Runner is how human the characters are. Like, I feel a lot more for, for Ryan Gosling's character, I can't remember his name, in um, K, yeah, in Blade Runner than I ever did for Deckard. Um, and, and I feel more for Deckard in 2049 than I did in the original Blade Runner. So... I think that, yeah, there's those, I think one of the things I really like about his films is that they do have, like in Prisoners, um, Jake Gyllenhaal's character is absolutely inhuman <laughs> to the point where, like, he doesn't behave even remotely like a regular human would. He's creepy as shit, but I really like yeah. him, even though I'm not sure what his motivations are or how I'm supposed to feel about yeah. him. I think that there's a line that Villeneuve walks where he doesn't give us as much 
from the characters as a lot of other jokes. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, give that's us... the whole thing about Sicario. Other than Kate, who it's very obvious she is a by the book law enforcer. Everyone she meets, you're like, are they trying to help her or kill her? I can't tell. And for some people, you never Do get I that like <laughs> You watch the film for two hours yeah, and you still well, don't know where you stand with people. And similarly, Josh Berlin's character in this, like, he only has a couple of interactions with the character, with the main characters, and he's presented in most ways as like a regular hero. Yeah. But in the one interaction he has with the protagonist, he's threatening and creepy <laughs> and doesn't seem nice at all. Yeah. And like, and 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 it's and we're not given like a oh well you know it's because he's he's you know he's just got your best interests at heart or a, oh it's because he's an evil guy who's trying to do he's just he's just like that and that's what we yeah. see of him and I really appreciate that he kind of often tells a story not through like it's not I've heard lots of people comparing it to Game of Thrones but like Game of Thrones and other things like that often feels the need to give you this absolutely intense holistic view of, of their yeah. worlds and characters where you eventually can track everything about them. Um, and villain news stuff is never yeah. like that. It's always like, like a kind of collage tapestry type thing that you've made up from scraps and fragments. And it leaves yeah. so much space for you as an audience to make your own ideas up and decide how you feel yeah. about things. And that yeah. I really... No, it's true. Yeah, and I, I, I think he does that really well. And I think it's, it's almost this miracle that in modern filmmaking, especially studio filmmaking in the studio system, as you said, there are so many stories studios have to tell, whether it's television or movie, where you are told, the, 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 the executives want you to explicitly state, this person is evil, this person is good, this is how you should feel about the world. And with, with most of his films, he's like, people just do things. These yeah. people just people, do people just like because that's the thing what i thought was really interesting about this and again not into spoilers yet but like you know straying into that territory is that the the kind of heroic army the the characters who we are like theoretically on their side have a real like nazi vibe yeah to their armor and their soldiers like they are not like we're the good guys in white we're nice they're just a different army from the other. I mean, in fairness, the other the other army look pretty yeah. evil. Um, like they've not got any like nice looking friendly people. But yeah, there's a level at which like none of them look like traditional heroes. They all yeah. look kind of like I don't know. Like and similarly, like there's some stuff in this where he's having like visions of his of his of his destiny, and they are not. It's not like, ah, yeah, great things going to happen to me. It's not like, ah, bad things going to happen to me. They are grey. It is like, you're seeing things that are going to happen to him. And it's a bit like, I, I have no idea how I'm supposed to yeah. feel about that at all. Like, I, I have zero. I would also say it really benefits from a second watch. There was a lot of stuff during the first 15, See, 20 minutes. I've, I've been tossing this over in my head that maybe I need to go in again. But then also I'm like, if I don't like it, I've lost five hours of my life to this film that I don't like. There's a lot of stuff during the first half hour that I, the first time through was all like, what did they say? Or what, what was yeah. that word? And then watching it a second time, it gave me a lot of context for the world and the ongoing story in the rest mm. of the film that I didn't get the first time because my other mild criticism of it would be, there's a lot of made up words. Yes. And, 
as the film goes on, they do this really clever thing where they quite often take the opportunity to have people who aren't speaking English or the sign language that's used in the film subtitled so you can see those made up names on the screen. Um, and then it gives you kind of a frame of reference for what they're saying. But they don't do it until about half an hour. It is in. a very, it is so a very odd first... choice because you will get like the standard subtitles you would expect. This is this location and this is what the relevance is and blah, blah. And then there'll be other things which seem more important than stuff that was explained to you via subtitles, which aren't explained at all. Someone would just say it in passing and you're like, yeah. that seems pretty important. <laughs> yes. And similarly, there were bits like, there were bits where, like, there's a bit where she's like recounting this kind of mantra to try and overcome yeah. fear. And because of the sound editing, you just got to hear what yeah. she's saying. I all. see. I, I, but, I took note of that scene. And I, for me, it made me laugh a bit when I actually came on screen. Because like, as you said, it's not, they don't make a massive thing of it. And I, the, the reason I laughed was because it felt slightly reminiscent of The Amazing Spider-Man, where Uncle Ben says, uh, wh- what's important here is moral obligation. And because obviously they don't want to repeat that line that we all heard two years ago. And obviously Fear is the Mind Killer was a massive part of the marketing for David Lynch's version. So I wonder if it was like, yes. well, we need to include that mantra because it's vital to her teachings and her ability, but also we don't want to remind people of the David Lynch. So how do we gloss over it without completely glossing over it? Well, you see, I thought I took it more as like, I think that that's something, it's one of those things where it's kind of like with great power comes great responsibility. It's an important line from the book and the story, but it is not all that there is. And there's this tendency in modern society to take the most iconic line from something and just repeat it ad infinitum yeah. and re- apply it to everything in the, in the entire text when actually it's not always. So I think that they, i I read that as them kind of purposefully obfuscating that so that it didn't become the thing, the whole yeah. focus of the whole thing. Like, because actually what's more important in that moment isn't what she's saying, but how it helps her overcome what she's feeling. Mm-hmm. I guess we should probably straight into spoilers soon. Let's get into spoilers. Let's do it. I absolutely loved the Harkonnens, especially Starsguard's like weird, creepy, <laughs> creepy bloated. Blobby, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like he is absolutely and this is the other thing that I really like about Villeneuve is that he's he's terrifying and not in a like, oh that's so alien and creepy way. <clears throat> he's just human enough that you can like view him like a regular human. Yeah but there's just something wrong about it. Yeah. And I really, really appreciated that. I thought he was like really, really horrible. Like, and not in like, but again, not in like a, oh, I'm just evil kind of way. Because in a lot of ways, like in terms of the politics of the world, he's kind of in the right, I guess. Yeah, and that's the thing. thing. It's, it's not even like you say, it's not even just I'm pure evil. It's everyone in this universe is terrible and I'm just better at it. I know how to navigate and yeah. play people off against each other and I know how to do what I need to do. So like you say, you, you want to kind of demonize this guy, but you're also dealing with protagonists who, when they are told by an inhabitant of the place that they're invading, you're not welcome here, their response is, the emperor gave us this place. Not yeah. are we <laughs> not we hear your concerns and we're not here to eradicate you or end your way of life. It's, but they said we could have it. Like, yeah, so- and us... <laughs> 
And Oscar Isaac's character, like, is is fascinating. I did think that early on, him and Paul have a chat, and Paul's like, "What if I don't want to be king of this planet of planet Scotland?" Um, and and he's like, "If you don't want to be king, I don't care because I love you. I'm a great dad." And I was all like, "Well, he's going to die, isn't he?" Yep. Like, you could, there's no way that he's going to be a supportive, kind father and live through this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like I thought he was really good as well. Like he I he wasn't like I'm a noble good leader, but he also wasn't like bad and evil. He was just a person. He was flawed, um, yeah. Yeah, like he he had nuances to him. Like he knew that it was a bad idea to take over the planet, but he also knew that he had to do it. He wanted what was best for Paul, but he didn't put Paul and Jessica above his duty to his weird family thing. Yeah. I'm not really sure how, how the political system works. Although but... I will say, uh, for, for a man who, I mean, it's not outright stated, but you imagine from their insane riches, their all the resources they have and their position in the galaxy, you would get the feeling he's a strategist and he is someone who is skilled in the art of war and, and warfare. So... The fact he goes out in no armor in the middle of the night was clearly invasion. I just like, I kind of like you deserve to get hit with a tranquilizer dart because you didn't think this through at all. Like you didn't radio anyone for help. You guys seem to have radios inbuilt in your necks and you didn't just think maybe can I get some security before I head out into this unknown in this country, in this planet we don't live on. That was a bit, and obviously I guess story got a story, but it just felt like. Well, and also the doctor did speci- like I, I, the doctor did specifically betray them, and, and it was clearly communicated to us that outside of that, pretty much everybody who's around him is super loyal to him yeah. in every respect. And in fairness, the doctor is still super loyal to him because he protects Paul and he tries. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like even when the doctor's betraying him, he's still kind of super loyal to him. So yeah. I can see why he would feel safe in a place where he was spoke where the only people who could have put him in danger were people who were part of his household, yeah. all of whom he he seemed to trust completely. I really I, I quite liked the doctor's like he again he only had a few moments, but I thought he was well drawn as a character. Yeah. Um I really, really liked Rebecca Ferguson. I think that I think that I thought Jessica was great. She carries a lot of the emotional weight of the film on her i really appreciated the difference in her performance from when she was on her own and she was consistently wondering how people like oh god this is awful what the fuck are we gonna do and then she'd like walk through a door and be all like hello i'm very calm and everything's normal here and i really loved that because like it was i re- it really it endeared her to me because she was like you really saw visually she didn't have to have a conversation with somebody where she was all like it's really difficult holding it together she was like you saw in her actions the massive difference between her when she was alone and her when she had other people looking at her. And I really, really appreciated that. I thought it was great. Yeah. Um, okay, can I talk about a problem I had, actually? And yeah. June is, is guilty of this, and so are so many films and TV shows about time travel or people who have had premonitions. So if I had a premonition that Patrick was going to go to Zimbabwe... And in Zimbabwe, a rhino would impale him. When Patrick told me, hey, dude, I can't do the podcast for a couple of weeks because I'm going to Zimbabwe. I would say something. 
that might be a bad example, but like, why does no one ever say anything? And in this, Paul meets several people he's had premonitions about and he says nothing. And he even has a basic fight to the death with one of them. You would just say, hey, dude, I know you. You've given me advice. Even if I met someone, right, and they sounded slightly crazy, if they said something that they had dreamt that I had said to them, I know what I sound like. I might not admit it, but subconsciously I'm going to be like, yeah, that sounds like a very me thing to say. So the fact he meets that guy and decides, yeah, I'll have a fight to the death rather than talk about the fact we're going to be friends one day, it drove me crazy. Why doesn't he tell anyone? Well, I mean, it's too, I mean, he, he told Duncan. He was like, hey, Duncan, I had a dream where you died. Please don't go to the place. I, I would like it if you were safe. And Duncan was all like, dude, I, I, I can't like change my literature on this because of your dreams. <laughs> like, <laughs> shut the fuck up. And I assume that other people might say that. I think that with the with the Fremen, there's a level at which he might be anxious not to appear as though he is trying to like trick them or control them mm. because they're like a proud, different race from him and they don't trust him. Yeah. So I do wonder if, from his perspective, if turning up being all like, hey, I had a lot of dreams about you guys and I know all of you already, <laughs> might just not, in, might not make them like, like true, yeah. more. Um, I also think that there's a level at which what's very clear, especially in a second viewing, is that the visions he has aren't literal. Oh yeah, of so course, because his, yeah, he his... they change quite a few times throughout the course of the film. Mm. But but I mean, even with that guy, yeah, I mean, there's an argument for maybe that guy doesn't become the version of himself he sees in the vision because he hasn't met him yet. But I don't know. I just think that would be my first course of action rather than please, dude, I don't want to have to stab you or have you stab me. If you trust me, we could actually be friends. I've seen it. I don't know. I would just give that a shot. I'm not sure, though, if... <clears throat> I think that because they're, like, not literal, I think that so in the visions, that guy says to him, like, I can guide you to the way that our people live, mm. essentially. And then by being the person who he fights to the death and by the fact that when he's fighting him to the death, he's all like, you should yield. And they're all like, we don't yield. That's not how it works. He does guide him to yeah. Yeah, understanding their understanding that thing. So like the, the vision comes true, but not in the form he saw it. Yeah. And if that's the way the visions work, I think it would be really difficult to talk to people about them because he doesn't really know what the visions mean until the thing Happens, happens yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and by and talking like, about it, you might make it not actually happen. Exactly, and like, uh, there was a moment. There's a moment when he meets Shani, and obviously he's been having dreams about her for months, and he loves her, and he knows, and he feels like he already knows her, and they're really close. Yeah, <clears throat> but she doesn't trust him or know him. And then there's this moment where he's all like, "Hey, yeah," and he starts talking to her like they're friends, and then she's a bit like, "Yeah," and he's like, uh, "Not nothing." Yeah, because like. What do you say to that person yeah. in that scenario where you're all? No, like, actually, yeah, that's many... that's a very good way to put it because actually, when you put it like that, it reminds me of times when I've met celebrities and I walk up yeah. to them or buddy buddy, and they don't know who the hell I am, but I feel like exactly. I know who they are because I've seen them portray a character or I've seen loads of interviews with them, so I feel like I know them inside out. But I am just some weird guy walking up to them that they have to be nice to because they know they're famous, and so yeah, it would be a similar situation. And similarly, he's had visions of that guy both being his friend and killing him. Yeah. And he's had visions of Shani both being in love with him and, and killing him. <laughs> so I also feel like maybe he's not 100% sure what the fuck these visions are telling him. Yeah. Um, so maybe he's not 
like if he's not confident what information he's got from the dreams, then it's hard for him to to articulate what they what what he even knows. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like I did. I really thought like it's very obvious in a lot of ways. Josh Brolin's kind of a you know we see him and then he's in like three scenes and then he kind of died, he disappears. It yeah. seems like he's probably died, but realistically he hasn't died because we didn't see him die on screen. Mm-hmm. And Josh Brolin, Javier, but especially Javier Bardem and Zendaya, aren't really in this. No. Like, they're in they're in the movie, they're in the posters, and they're in the marketing materials. But like, I mean, that looks like Zendaya's job in this movie looks like the easiest shit in the world. She basically yeah. just says Paul like 30 times yeah. and looks at a desert. She's having like, a great summer because obviously she's one of the people who gets mind wiped in No Way Home. So she's probably going to be in that yeah. for seven minutes. And then she's in this for seven minutes. So her agent is just, he's killing it right now. <laughs> do, you want, do you want $7 million for doing nothing? <laughs> a lot of holidays booked for this year. Could you find me parts? that don't actually involve a lot of acting. But, but they'll the, still put the, me on the poster. <laughs> um, yeah, like, but no, I thought that, that like, there's some obvious stuff there. There is a lot of stuff in this, which, like, I think that it's one of those things where it will depend very much on how, like, this will be different in retrospect once you've seen the second half. Yeah. Because there is a lot of stuff in this, which I'm like, oh yeah, well, you know, they didn't, they didn't cover that in this one. Like her character gets zero expansion, really. Isn't even really a thing in this film. Yeah. But I don't mind because my assumption is that she's going to be very important in the second half. But I do think that there's stuff in this that maybe in retrospect will look better or worse depending on how the second film plays out. Because you might get explanations for things that that were confusing, or you might get expansions on characters who. But equally, if they don't go back to those things, then rewatching this, you'll be a bit like, "Oh well, I mean, what was that? Why was why was that even? Why was that even there?" But I thought that, like, I really, really appreciated the way the plot developed. Um, I really, really liked. There's a couple of things, like just neat little. There's the bit when he goes to talk to his dad, and like he's in a field of gravestones of all their like ancestors, and he references that it's their ancestors. And I thought that, like, in a world where they can clearly move planets and live on different planets. It was such a neat way of being like, they've lived on this planet for quite a long time. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and stuff like that, I thought was really, really well, well done. Dave, Dave Batista as well, I assume must be an important character in the second one. Yeah. He is literally like, he is barely in this. He is. And like, he's, and he's famously turned down a few of the summer's biggest films, whether financially or critically, because he feels like he doesn't want to do any more bit parts. Like he was, there was a role written specifically for him in the Suicide Squad and he loves James Gunn. We all know how he's gone to to bat for James Gunn a number of times, but he turned that down in favour of Army of the Dead because Army of the Dead was a lead role. So as you say, clearly Vinaloo sat with him and said, look, you're going to be on screen for five minutes in this, but it's a trilogy, it's building to something, you will have some of the most memorable scenes I have no doubt that that's what happened because, you know, he's gone on record as saying, I'm in the big leagues now. I want the juicy roles. Yeah. I also really appreciated his performance in this. It was brief, but like, I really liked the way that he was scary and mean, but also in the scenes with his uncle, he he displayed like a, a vulnerability and, yeah. and fear. Like there were bits where he was all like, uncle, what, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, and his uncle was kind of like, it's no, you're fucking jumped. I'm not, I'm not fucking telling you, go away. I've got to say as well, um, in terms of performance, Oscar Isaac's death scene 
there is this look on his face. He completely sells the look of a man who realizes he'll never see his family again. Yep. But he knows he's, he's duty bound to do what he does in that moment. He nails it. Yeah. He's brilliant. And like, Stan Skarsgård is is, so is creepy, so but good. not too creepy. Yeah. Like, um, and I really, one thing I really appreciate, so I guess we should get to the centre of it, is I really loved Timothy Chalamet in this. I oh, yeah, thought he, I thought he was amazing. You know, it's funny because I like... think he was one of these people who I heard a lot about before I ever saw him in, in anything. And the way the internet spoke about him, I was ready to dislike him immediately. And I've not seen him in a tremendous amount of things, but I have liked him in all of them. I just, I thought, what, what I really liked about Paul was that, like, obviously, like you said at the top, like, a lot of other things have drawn from this. And it's it does appear to be presenting a relatively, a, a kind of chosen one E narrative. Yeah. But what you know really what's funny love- is that it's also got elements of 2049, where that character is now convincing themselves they're the one, but we hear other people speak about it and they might not be the one. There might be someone yep. else in contention for it. So it's, it's interesting the parallels with his own work that this draws. Well, and I, I also, I just, what I really liked was the fact that like Paul does not seem psyched about being the one yeah. at all. <laughs> he seems like super miserable about it because like, it seems like a grim, he's not, it's not like you're the one, like you're going to save the world. It's kind of like you're the one, and maybe you're going to get a huge amount of responsibility. Which, given that at the start of the film, he was like, "I'm not sure I want even the level of responsibility I already have." Yeah. For then he's was like, to turn "You're going to get a huge like, amount of responsibility, and someone might stab you with a massive dagger." Yeah, and it was just the fact that he was all like, "I'm dad. I'm not sure I want to be like in charge of a planet." And then later on, his mum's all like, "Well, we kind of genetically bred you to be in charge of a lot of planets." And he's all like, oh, "Mom, I don't want that." And I really, I like, I really. I really appreciated that he like, and then in his visions, there were visions. He had those visions of them like winning, kind of, but like it doesn't look like a good winning. No, because he was like, "Yes, we're gonna we're gonna defeat our enemies, and then our our crusade will drench the the universe." Blood. So this is the thing, um, and like one thing I think they did really well. I don't know if it was intentional. I feel he's such a deliberate filmmaker. It must have been, but there is a lot of white saviour overtones in like a lot of this, like them landing on the planet. And even though you, you're, it's explains through exposition that it's not necessarily about them. It's, yeah. it's more in line with the prophecy, but there was still that imagery of this white family. in, like you said, very Nazi-esque <laughs> uh, uniforms landing and being held as saviours by the black and brown people of this planet there's a lot of liberating that this family has obviously done. So yeah, it's kind of one of those things like, even if for people who haven't read the books like me, I don't know where it's going, but even if the third film is him conquering the galaxy and and being all powerful, it's like, maybe he's not the right person to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like it didn't, it didn't paint him as like, it's not like a Harry Potter, like you're going to save everything and everyone will be happier. In fact, when he looked into the future of what it was going to be like to be the chosen one, it was like, it looks bad, right? (laughs) Like it looks, it does not look like it's going to be a good time for him or anyone else. Like, I don't think he's supposed to be a savior. You know what I mean? Like, I think he's, I think he's supposed to be like, I don't know, like, I think that it's not so much that he's, like, 
the chosen one, like you're going to save everyone or anything else. It's more in line with the kind of general philosophy of it. It's like you're the chosen one in that you are going to be gifted a large amount of power and then you will do what you do with it. And it will probably not be good or bad specifically. It will just be stuff that you do because all of the characters in this film just kind of do stuff. And like, also like his mum's got a really creepy vibe about her. I'm not 100% sure she's like, on his side, yeah, which sounds mad because well, like, I mean, she obviously, so film- she has believed for so long he's the one, and then she's told by the sisters in her coven that we don't think he's the one. Then she discovers she's pregnant, so it's like, hmm, maybe he's not the one, and I should kill him at yeah. some point. <laughs> Absolutely, um, I thought that the sequence where the the senior Bene Gesserit lady made him put his hand in the in the hurting box was just so good it was and you know what it was it sounds like a funny small thing but it is incredibly hard to sell that level of pain without being cartoonish and he nails it yeah he absolutely did i really loved when she walked away she was all like farewell young human i hope you live (laughs) Uh, i was i was all like i'm gonna use that as a goodbye from now on that's like that's that's my favorite line um but like that was one of the only lines in the whole thing where I laughed a bit because it sounded a bit silly. Whereas for me, a lot of the other stuff, I thought they delivered, like I really appreciated the gravitas with which they talked about spice harvesting. I just couldn't keep a straight face that entire time. When they stood next to a a silo of spice, I was like, what is happening? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Like, and there was lots of like, like there was lots of weird stuff like that. Like, like, I'm not sure what was going on with... I, I have read the book, but yeah. it was a long time ago and I don't remember it. Mm. And I don't really remember what's... what. I don't really remember the Lynch film either, although I'm pretty sure I've seen that as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I've got, like... There was lots of stuff where I was, like... There were, like, little things. So so they've got that guy who, who works with them who, like, rolls his head eyes back in his head. Yeah. Um, and does some, like, really tough maths um and i was a bit like i feel like that's important but then in this film they never kind of came back to it so i'm guessing maybe it's not important for yeah. this version of the story but like there was lots of stuff like that that i really liked where like there were just little like I, I loved in any other sci-fi film they would have been like our enemies have these uh small insect-sized killing drones so we better watch out for them and they would have explained how those work yeah whereas instead what happened was paul was hanging out and some <laughs> little fucking thing came through the wall and he was just like oh no and he was like looking at it and it was looking at him and i was all like what is this like <laughs> like i have like i have no frame of reference whatsoever <laughs> like there was a bit of me that was like, why can't it see him? Yeah. Because he was standing very still. I was all like, yeah. it's like a motion tracker or something. Yes. Yeah, so like- my impression was that the hologram was uh, interfering with its ability with to its read ability the room. With its ability to see him. Yeah. yeah. But like it, but it, but at no point before or after did it make any effort to explain that to us. It's literally just like, <laughs> and this is like- this is why it's so funny, and it makes you wonder if there was some slight studio interference, because there are things like that where Villeneuve is like, if I show people this, they can put two and two together and get what they need to get. But then a yeah. scene later, he's literally listening to an audiobook that is like, this is this planet. This is the planet's resources. This is how this planet's resources will be relevant to you as an individual. 
so it just bounces back and forth between you know, show don't tell. And yeah, no, this thing is kind of complicated. Maybe let's just tell them. So he listens to a lot of audiobooks about things that later on are very specific to the plots. Well, but I appreciate it. The thing is, I thought that the audiobooks were better than the opening narration from Zendaya where she just told you stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, like where they were all like, like we we haven't even like let's rather than even trying to stick this stuff into the universe, let's just have her do a little monologue where she explains the backstory of her planet. Yeah. And it was a bit like like, I feel like there's so many ways they could have worked that into a conversation. Yeah, you know like, I mean, I mean like, if, if it was going to be a vision, why didn't he just have a conversation, a vision of him having a conversation with her where she explained yeah. that to him rather than a voiceover? So, yeah, some of the choices are odd and, and tonally it can, and it can feel a bit weird. But honestly, it's never a thing where it throws you out of it. No, I really like, I really enjoyed balance between things that it gave us background for things that it explained really clearly and things that it just gave us fuck all yeah it was just like this this is just a thing that happens sorry like like at no point did anybody explain how their personal shields work like it just demonstrated that like in the combat scenes like and and i really i loved what i really loved was that bit where like they'd all talked about how duncan was like a badass yeah. he was a great fighter and there was that bit where like all of the other people from that or from the army were just getting murdered and he was just like roaming around the castle just murdering groups of people that, that scene when his... he approaches the helicopter and they're all like, like yep yeah, no i don't want any parts of this yeah. and just allow him to board it <laughs> yeah he like kills a couple of them and then he's all like them. and the other ones are just all like mate fuck this like i've just watched because i really and it's like it's not a bit in Iron Man 3 where the guys are like, I, I, I hate working here. Like, there's a level at which, like, lots, I'm sure there are lots of soldiers who presented with somebody who can fight 30 soldiers aren't going to be stupid enough to try and fight it, right? Yeah. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, and I really, I really appreciated that. And I really like the balance between us watching the Imperial soldiers with the orc teeth like murder 30 people and like yeah. they were unbelievably efficient but then even them Duncan was just like fucking slicing <laughs> yeah. through 10 well, of I, I love the time. fact that you know obviously as you said we get the feeling that um, the, the Paul's mum is very powerful and, and an empath of a very high level and so at one point she says oh Duncan's gone and then a second later he's just like I'm gonna murder everyone else that's still in this room after he's Duncan declared dead he <laughs> still keeps going <laughs> She's like, Duncan's dead. Duncan's all like, am I though? Or could I at least kill five more people? Um, and yeah, like I really, I thought Jason Momoa did a fan. I loved him in this. I, I mean, so I don't think I've seen anything that I don't love him in yet. Like I don't like um, Aquaman at all. I think it's terrible, but he's brilliant in it. I don't like yeah. either of the Justice Leagues, but he's brilliant in them. He's just, he just oozes charisma. He sweats it. And I think this is a real good use of his skills. Duncan is a really good character. You root for him. You really like him. And in terms of just using his physicality properly, he nails this. It's great. You completely yeah. believe that character is that type of person. Well, I also, I really loved the scene where he talked about the Fremen and how rather than it being like, I because re- that's the other thing about the kind of white savior vibes. What I thought was really interesting was that Darkness had kind of, obviously kind of oppressed the Fremen for years and years. Whereas like what it was revealed so over the film was that actually the reason that Oscar Isaac went to the planet was because he was all like, 
those motherfuckers might be able to help me because like it's so you've reminded me of something done... that another line of dialogue that came up repeatedly where i was like you have to stop saying it because i can't take it seriously it's like is it, is it desert power desert power <laughs> <laughs> i almost was like expecting a little jingle to play every time you said it desert power <laughs> <laughs> it just... i really well i really liked i really liked that the uh that when he said desert power at the start i was all like that's a silly sounding phrase isn't yeah. it whereas towards the end when paul turned around and was like desert, desert power, power i was all like yes paul it's a thing desert power i'm in dune 2 better be called dune 2 desert power <laughs> Well, I also loved that, like there was that scene where the the imperial just uh, just uh, the imperial lady who who was supposed to obviously oversee the transfer of power. She was like, "Sorry, I can get across the desert my own way," and then she just like got out two hooks, and then it just didn't explain. And then later on, obviously, we see some one of them at the very end riding on the back of the sandworm, and I assume that that's what those hooks are for. Yeah. I'm guessing that they're that they're worm riding hooks. But again, at no point did anybody feel the need to say that. Or mention it like she was just all like, "I'm going to attract the worm and get out some hooks," and then that was, and then and then nobody, no, there was no need presented. I thought they were going to be her weapons, but then she just didn't fight with them. Yeah, and I was just like, I don't like. Um, well, yeah, that brings us on to the sandworm is awesome. Yeah, like it is just terrifying. It's terrifying. It's like a genuine force of nature. That's something that I don't think has been like played out and and stolen from this and reused over and over again that thing's horrific having said that obviously the mandalorian oh yeah that's got some yeah i guess star wars has got some big mouth desert animals but But, but but the thing is you know what's funny is that even though there's an entire episode of the mandalorian dealing with how an entire town would have to take this thing on you still it was fun but you didn't get the sense of like in dune it's terrifying that creature yeah. is absolutely, and I love, it's a real small thing, but I love the choice of a creature like that would survive by learning how we walk and yeah. and listening out for regular footsteps or something that sounds like a pattern of running. So having to create this weird dance that would either throw it off or just wouldn't sound like what it thinks prey sounds like. I loved it. And it looks stupid as well. Yeah. So it's funny to watch. Yeah, it's, the, it's like the layers of kind of like of world building. There yes. Like the worm hears regular footsteps, but then they've gone into all the implications of that. Like, so these people, the Fremen walk in this way, which allows them not to be heard, but they also have a tool that allows them to attract it by making a sound that sounds like footsteps. Yeah. And like those things I thought were really, really well realized. Um, I also love that bit where it, where it came out of the desert and looked at him and it was all like, <laughs> I was all like, is it like talking? It reminded me of sometimes when, when, when the cat sees birds, he makes this weird noise where he's all like, <laughs> at them. like, like he's being all like, hello, fellow birds come down here and I will uh, definitely hang out with you. In the normal way. <laughs> um, and I was like, I was like, is the sandworm like trying to make people noises? I'm just trying to get him to climb into its mouth. And I really, yeah, I really liked, uh, well, uh, interesting though, like, uh, the first time I saw it, the whole nighttime desert scene where you saw the worm was much more visible than the second time. Yeah. The second time, at the second screening, I saw it, it was very dark and I couldn't really make out a lot so of it. So the funny thing is, mine was very dark, but unlike Game of Thrones, where I felt like I was staring at something for half an hour and I was sure there was something there, but I couldn't tell, I think that enhanced the experience for me, personally. And I, mm. I, felt, I felt the same way about the nighttime attack with the, with the enemies. There were parts I couldn't see, but I was like, 
I can't I can't tell who has the upper hand here. And I think that really yeah. worked. I think it was done in a good way. So to I wrap loved... this up, you're saying five out of five. Yeah, it's it, I I think it's I think it's probably I think it's on par with the news of the films. I think it's one of the finest sci-fi films I've ever seen. Uh, I would put it right up. What one th- I, if one piece of feedback I would give is that like the reason why that stuff isn't scary in the Mandalorian isn't this is because in Star Wars everything is like a bit of a silly joke. Yeah, and it is the polar opposite of that. It is like it takes everything incredibly seriously. Uh, it reminds me of Lord of the Rings in a lot of ways, like a sci-fi version of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. And I and that's a that's a high piece of praise from me. Uh, I I liked everything about it, aside from a few minor gripes. And I'm I've watched it twice. I'm happily excited to watch it a third time. Uh, it's I, yeah, I think it's absolutely spectacular. So I still don't know how I feel. So I will defer to Patrick. So the official panels and bars line is five out of five. Go and see now, preferably in IMAX if you can, because visually it is just groundbreaking the sound is fantastic as well it deserves good speakers so yeah go watch and tweet us let us know which one of us you agree with before we get into what's really good where patrick and i talk about all the media we've consumed over the past however many days it's been since we spoke to each other have you seen the trailer for Lightyear? uh yes i have what did you think i think it's horrible like a <laughs> like <laughs> like a nightmare that I couldn't actually believe I was watching. I don't I don't know who decided to make Buzz Lightyear take his weird head sock off, but I don't want him to ever. Like so it's, it, who knows how much whole... of this is true, but apparently this was always the plan from when they made the first Toy Story. And the problem was that Disney were like, that's a stupid idea. We'll give you a couple of yeah. hundred bucks to do it. Which is why the subsequent spin-off TV show looks so cheap. So for those that don't know, Lightyear is actually so in the in the world of of Toy Story, Buzz Lightyear is essentially a massive IP that belongs to a Disney type character. So when Andy and his friends go to the movies, Lightyear is the franchise they watch. So Buzz is a toy based on that movie. And Disney, like I said, Disney originally let them do Buzz Lightyear Star Command, but it looks like it costs $7 to make. So I guess eventually Pete Doctor has managed to convince Disney to let him make this film. So this will be the film we see that is their in-universe franchise. And I think the reason being given to why, we'll see, we all know the, we know the real reason, it's not Tim Allen, but the reason we're being told that Tim Allen is the voice of the toy and not in the movies, because whoever was the big actor in the TV show just didn't want to do the... the uh, the merchandise, so they, they they got some knockoff guy to do the voice. It's an interesting idea. I feel a bit sad every time Pixar does a sequel or prequel because that was their whole thing when they came out initially. They didn't want to be the franchise guys. They wanted to keep telling original stories. And now three car sequels and a Toy Story spinoff later, here we are. So it's, it's a shame, but I'm a sucker for a lot of Pixar stuff. I will give this a chance. Oh, yeah. I think Disney were right, and it was a fucking stupid idea. Like, I, don't, I, think it's, it's, I think it's horrible, and I don't understand. It's one of those trailers where I sat there watching it, and I was all like, "Who wants this?" Yeah, like who is who is who who's who's out there being all like, you know what I would like is a slightly more mature take on Buzz Lightyear. Like <laughs> nobody is thinking that. Nobody in the world. What's fun about Pixar's films, especially Toy Story, is their charm their childlike innocent 
joyous charm. Yeah. And like, it just feels like, it reminds me of, do you remember when they released that Bomberman game where Bomberman was like oh, yeah. gritty and, yeah. And, yeah. and adult? And I was just like, what is, what is this for? Like, I love Bomberman more than almost anybody in the world. But what I like about it is that it's not one of these things. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, like it's just, yeah. So Patrick, what have you been watching slash playing slash reading? Um, well, I'm still watching Foundation and I'm going to continue to repeat that if anybody has the opportunity to watch Foundation, which is on Apple TV, they definitely, definitely should. It's really good. I fucking love it. Um, it's been renewed for a second season. Nice. So evidently, however many people is watching it is enough people. <laughs> but Although I do wonder if Apple don't want to admit if it like I wouldn't I do wonder if, if it was doing badly, Apple would be all like, fuck it, let's just spend another twenty million dollars yeah. on it. Who like it's nothing to them, really. Yeah. Like and and I think it's probably like it's a slow burn of a story. So I think they probably appreciate that it might not immediately pick up in 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 kind of attention. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really, really good and I love it. Mm. Uh, so I would I would definitely recommend that. Um I've also been playing uh I, the N64 games have been released on Switch. I don't know if you know about this. Cool, but, yeah, um, yeah. So I was more excited for the Saturns because I don't have a Switch, but seeing the Saturn stuff get announced, I was like, I might have to purchase one of those. I don't think that's out yet. I think it's Mega Drive at the moment. Mega, Mega Drive, yeah. 64. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, but you have to pay more money. So mm-hmm. I already pay them like £30 a year or something for online, and they want me to give them like another £20 a year to play N64 games most of which I've already fucking paid them for like three times. Do you have the option to do one of purchases so they stay in your library or is it just subscription? No, no, it's like a Netflix subscription thing. So that's the other thing is that if I pay them, I won't even own them. And in a couple of years time, it's not like I'll be able to turn my Switch placements for games. They'll be gone unless I'm still subscribing. Uh, So I, rather than doing that, I I cut out the middleman and just booted out my 3DS and started playing Zelda on that instead. Nice. So I'm playing I'm playing I'm playing Ocarina of Time, uh, which is one of the finest games ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the 3DS remake is really good. It's got lovely models. It's got all the original sounds, but they fixed up some of the animations. It's right. it's gorgeous. Speaking of which, uh, did you see the GTA remastered trailer? I did, yes. What did you think? Because um, I have thoughts. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I was initially, I was all like, that looks doesn't look in, that much better. Mm. And I was all like, but I do love those games. Yeah. And then I was like, and then they announced they were fixing the controls and making giving it modern controls. And I was all like, oh, awesome, yeah. super in, love that. And then they were all like, you have to buy all three of them, and it's sixty quid. And I was all like, oh, well, this is my thing because. I, I know there are people who are like freaking out who are like, why didn't they just make all of them look like five? And it's like, yeah, I get that. But that's an insane amount of work for people to do. Yeah, that's um, years worth of work. It's years worth of work that Rockstar doesn't want to do. And the funny thing is, I love all those games so much that if they had just re-released them exactly as they are, I would still love them because I have so much nostalgia yeah. tied to them. The price point is where I'm like... Because you've obviously done some work. They do look smoother. They do look nicer. You can actually make out individual faces now. And cities don't load as you're driving through them. I just feel like for a company that hasn't given us a new game in like five plus years, maybe don't charge us £60 for this. Well, some of the soundtrack's missing as well because they couldn't renegotiate it. So you're not going to have all of the music that you expect. My feeling is if they were 20 quid each, 
I would definitely buy at least one of them. I'd buy Vice City and be happy with that. I'd probably buy GTA 3 and be happy with that, Mm. yeah. Um, And they might might then get another 20 quid for me out of me for Vice City when I finish GTA 3, maybe. I might even go back for San Andreas. But I'm not paying 60 quid for all three of them at once when I know that at best I'm going to play one of them. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's that's my problem, is that, like, they've bundled them all together. But then also, I don't know if you know about this, but, like, so Vice, so San Andreas is also free separately on Game Pass. So on Xbox Game Pass, I can have just San Andreas, and I've already paid for it because I have Game Pass. Yeah. But it's not the one I want. So it's the one I want least of the three. Um, <laughs> GTA 3 is available on PlayStation Now, which mm. is their subscription service, which I don't have. Um, so like, I was a bit like, I really wish Game Pass had given me like a token to have one of them for free. Yeah. And I could have picked. And maybe PlayStation Now had done the same thing. Because as is, I feel like now they've taken the one I want most, stuck it in a subscription service that I don't own. They've taken the one I want least and given it to me for free, but I don't really feel like playing it. And they've made it very abundantly clear that they're more than capable of releasing the three of them separately, yep. but they're just, just but they're just to. not. I, I, it's, um, it's insane because it's our own fault. Because I was going to say Rockstar for a long time, I'd say maybe a decade now, have not really been on the on the pulse of what's happening. And they haven't listened to their fan base. And they just do what they want. But the problem is we keep spending all our money on their games. So we're justifying all these outdated things they do and these things that don't reflect us as a modern games audience. So I don't know if I can complain. When yeah. they announce I... 6, 6 will probably be missing a bunch of features that a modern game should should have. It will probably be frustrating to get hold of. And then they'll probably release those bunch of features that I'm talking about in an expensive add-on later on in the year. But I will buy it, and I will also subscribe to that add-on. So, why why am I complaining? Well, it's exactly the same as the Nintendo stuff. Like, I didn't buy the, I haven't bought the N sixty four games, but a lot of people I know have. Mm. And despite the fact that several of the N sixty four games are literally broken and they're like the laziest ports you could possibly do, everyone's all like, "I love these N sixty four games." Yeah. So I think that there's a level at which, when you become a big enough franchise or brand, you don't need to put in that effort. No. And I think also there's a level at which like they could write GTA and anything in itself. Yeah. So I'm kind of... There's a, there's I feel a like the next game is going to be uh, GTA, we punch you in the face. And when you turn up to game to buy it, they will punch you in the face. And people will complain, but it will still sell 7 billion copies. Yeah, exactly. Well, in fairness, and also what I would say is that like they, they've released these three games so many times before without fixing the controls or the yeah, lighting. This is true. So there's a little bit of me that's like, oh, they've, they've done the... Con-. Like, it's the minimum they could do to a port. And I'm yeah. still kind of like, oh, at least it's not nothing. At least it's not crap now. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, like, I... My feeling is that over time, they'll release three of them separately yeah. for about 20 quid each. And I think that then I'll almost certainly get into them. Yes, but yeah. I'm not... I'm not giving them... I'm not giving them 60 quid for all three straight off the bat. I'm just... I, I'm just not, really. Agreed. Um because I've been playing GTA Five recently as well. Because I, I, I was I was watching the the remastered trailer and I was thinking oh, I like GTA and I already own it. So like yeah. I was like I just downloaded it and started playing it. Um and and it's bad. Like yeah. it's a bad game. Like like I I really like driving around and I quite like the kind of some of the other stuff you can do like get the shops and stuff. But like the missions are boring. I don't the like the characters. Boring, and I don't like any of the people in it. Yeah. And then the shooting's bad. Yeah. And like, I played it for like five or six hours, and it was all like, I don't really like 
like there's like there's like this game is made up of like 15 things and i like like three of them yeah. like why am i like yeah i think that i don't know whether i've just grown up and changed or just got bored of doing the same things over and over again. i i, you know I, I, mean? I don't like, i don't think you i don't think that is it i think the reason those games okay yeah a massive part of his nostalgia a lot of our generation were, were teenagers when those games came out and they were super fun and rebellious but every iteration improves on the mechanics of the past iteration every iteration does something new and story-wise they're tight there's really like even four which i love and i know four is not a lot of people's favorite installment has really memorable characters and a good storyline i think a lot of people don't like it because the ambitions of some of the others are huge. You, you know, it's go from kid on the corner to drug kingpin or whatever. And four is just like, you're slightly less poor. <laughs> but I, I still think each one of those stories adds something to the lore. And they, they, they even the add-ons for four have some really fun missions. But five was just like, GTA plays the hits and it doesn't play them well. It, do, it doesn't, it's not that much more of a step graphically for me. The characters aren't... I don't like the characters. I don't like the missions. The world is nice, I guess. But after you kind of get over the wow, this is really big of it, it doesn't have a character like Liberty City or Vice and, City or San Andreas. And there's nothing me. to do. Like, all you can do is drive around it and shoot people. And so all the missions are just no. drive somewhere and shoot people. Yeah. And it just kind of becomes... Like, I, I personally don't like the stories of the GTA games. I don't think they're very well written. I don't like... I might for me you can track linearly how much I like the story of each GTA game with GTA 3 first because it had the least story followed by Vice City which I like a bit less because it has more story <laughs> followed by San Andreas which has got too many fucking cutscenes followed by GTA 4 which is half cutscenes and I can't mm. stand it followed by GTA 5 where there's three characters <laughs> all with 100 cutscenes and I hate all of them um, I, I don't like I started Red Dead 2 and yeah. I played it for like 20 minutes and the first cutscene kind of really kicked in and got going and the people started talking to each other and there was a bit of me that was just all like sorry just to cut you off as well Rockstar the Red Dead naming system is stupid Patrick as you were yeah like there was just this moment where two of the characters started talking and I was all like not again I can't do this again I, I just I can't like it's just the same Rockstar shit again I've seen this two gruff ass men and they turn to each other and one of them's all like it's real difficult doing crimes. And the other one's all like, yeah, but what else are we going to do except crimes? And then like, <laughs> and then they, and they approach it with this kind of gravitas and they've got really good actors and really good animation, but the shit they're saying is stupid. Um, yeah. And like, they think they're the Sopranos, but actually they're like a ITV cut. They're like the bill. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and, and that, I, that is what I can't hack about them. So I, I, as I said earlier in the show, have been what I watched the French Dispatch. I'm going to watch it again tomorrow night. If you're not into Wes Anderson, I actually still recommend this. It's very Wes Anderson. It's very whimsical and, and sarcastic. But I think it's it's easily the best looking of his films. It's beautifully shot. The cast is just insane. Timothy Chalamet, Francis McDormand, Jeffrey Wright, uh, Benicio del Toro. Leah Sudu, like I could just go on, like oh, the people you'd expect, Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray, there's just a ton of cam camelos, uh, Angelica Houston, Henry Winkler, like just, just I can't think the, the amount of people that are in it. They couldn't even fit them on the poster. It's very funny. It's very well written. It's tight. Like it packs a lot in into quite a short runtime. But yeah, if you want to be entertained, if you want to smile, 
100% go to the theatre, watch French, French Dispatch. I also finally caved and got into the hype of Succession. And I blitzed the first three seasons. It's currently two season, two episodes into season to season three. Um, but I've, I've caught up in like a week because I was just addicted. Um. It's, it's one of those shows where everybody in it is terrible. <laughs> They're all horrible people who are completely untrustworthy and don't do anything for the right reasons. But the dialogue is razor sharp. The actors are just brilliant. They just... Some of the lines are just so incredible. Um, and yeah, it's kind of... I don't even know if twists are the right words to use. I don't even know if you consider them twists because you know from the jump you can't trust any of these people. So when someone betrays someone, you're not like... <gasps> you're like, yeah, it was he was going to do that at some point because he's a terrible person. Yeah, they're all dicks, so of course... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it kind of has... So it uses that device that most of shows want to use, that you have a kind of fish-out-of-water character who is not our protagonist, but is our eyes into the world of how this thing works. And what's funny is over the course of the three seasons, even they kind of become a terrible person. They're nowhere near as terrible as the rest of the family. But it's kind of that cynical view that you don't really succeed in an environment like this unless you're willing to be terrible and sacrifice all your morals. So if you haven't already watched it, Succession is the best thing HBO has done in years. And as we all know, the bar at HBO is very high, but I would really recommend it. It's very, very funny, very sharp. Yeah, so that's that's been it. Sounds awesome. Uh, I'll give it a go. We actually, we're actually later than our planned next episode. The planned episode was the Mission Impossible Halloween <laughs> marathon but halloween was yesterday so patrick and i are just gonna watch mission impossible because the mission, mission impossible awesome. bonfire night special there you go <laughs> but yeah so that will be our next episode we are going to watch all is it six or seven uh i think it's six now six uh mission Impossible have been released so far patrick doesn't need to watch them because he can recite them in his sleep but we will and that will yeah, be the next I, I watch them all the time but i'm i'm super and <laughs> i'm super into watching them again i, I like but that's that. the next one a retrospective of one of the best modern action film franchises currently going um so yeah that'll be the next episode as always like subscribe please give us feedback because it helps boost us in the algorithm so people that don't know us can actually discover this and we can keep making it and quit our jobs and uh yeah hit us up on panels and bars all one word on twitter and instagram let us know if there's anything you want us to cover and we will see you when we see you thank you Bye. Bye.